Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time to hit that vault. Uh, This episode originally aired August 9th, 2022, and it's part three of our series on whistling. All right, let's go right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series on whistling. Now, if you haven't heard the first two parts, you might want to go check those out first. Uh, in the uh, in the previous sections, we talked about uh, the physics of what happens in the mouth when you whistle. We talked about whistling-based languages or variants of languages. And we talked about the fascinating uh, practice of Chinese transcendental whistling, as well as some uh, various psychonautical beliefs about <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the world changing power of whistling. But today, it might be interesting to turn our eyes to ancient history and say, did people whistle in the ancient world? And if so, how would we know about it? (laughs) This is such a great question that I'd never really thought about because I kind of took it for granted. Like, this is a sound that the human body can make. Therefore, people would have made this sound. And, uh, you know, I think for the most part, this is a, a a good way of looking at it, things. But then the other side of the equation is, all right, well, let's look at the evidence. What evidence do we have in the literature of the ancient world that people whistled? And then and then if they did whistle, well, what are the attitudes concerning whistling? Because it, one thing that I think we've already been able to, to, to stress in this series is that, that whistling, as fascinating as it is, it is not a, a neutral thing. It, we end up having these various cultural and, uh, and as we'll discuss, superstitious weights attached to the practice of whistling. You know, I'm just generally fascinated by the idea of ancient music, I guess in part because 
for the most part, we don't know what it sounded like. And so when you find, uh, for example, people who have tried to render into performances some of the oldest recorded, like written notation of music that we have, such as the uh, the famous uh, Hurrian songs or Hurrian hymns that are from the, the ancient city of Ugarit, which are these hymns to the goddess Nikal, uh, they're, they're written on uh, cuneiform tablets and people have tried to turn that music notation into performances that you can hear today. And it's very haunting. Uh, the same is true. I think there's an ancient Greek tombstone that has some music notation on it that has been translated into to modern uh, music. I think it's known as the Seklos or Sekulos uh, epitaph. And when you hear those sounds, they, they really do feel very alien. They're like they're from another world. Uh, and it just it opens the mind to all these possibilities that the, the, the ancient world was full of music that we will never know because it wasn't recorded. Of course, it couldn't be. And it also wasn't written down or notated in any way that we can understand today. Yeah, yeah. All this is definitely worth thinking about. And again, yeah, coming down to like why is whistling important enough to take note of? Uh, you know, this is a question that, that remains on one's mind as we look at these, uh, these different examples. But uh, what, what the main paper that I was looking at that was really getting into this was a 2000 paper by A.V. Van uh, Stekelenberg titled Whistling in Antiquity. And the author dives into the, like, the basic question of, well, what evidence do we have that particularly the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans whistled or didn't whistle? And again, on one hand, it's hard to believe that they didn't. And, uh, and Stekelenburg points out that we know the Romans, for instance, had many songs for different occasions. And yet whistling would, would also probably have been considered vulgar and not something that a person of status would do compared to other sounds that one might make. Uh, proper Romans were not even supposed to sing, for example. I did not know that. Not me neither. Uh, and yet, uh, Stekelenberg writes, quote, whistling a tune would therefore not have been compatible with the characters of many, if not most, of the persona in ancient literature. Apart from that, however, it is a remarkable fact that we also never meet a slave, a fisherman, pimp, or soldier whistling a tune, not even in comedy. So what Stekelenberg is pointing out here is that, okay, if, if whistling is not the proper thing to do, it's not the th thing that your, your heroes and your, your, your proper Romans would, would have done, well, what about the, the improper characters in your various writings? Surely somebody would come, come along and they would whistle, and by whistling signify that they are an improper character and therefore deserving of ridicule or the villain of the piece, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not uh, when you look at what kind of Roman literature survives to us, it's not all uh, lofty uh, <laughs> royal drama. You know, there are some really bawdy, satirical Roman literature that still exists today. And so you would expect the characters in this to engage in all manner of vulgarity that the Romans knew about. Yeah, like I think of our own like cinematic uh, uh, history here, uh, and also this gets into literature as well, spitting. Uh, spitting on the ground in front of you, generally considered uncouth but in most circles, mm -hmm. and yet you definitely see it a lot in cinema because it's a great way to establish that, well, this character is a little rough around the edges. Um, you know, and I think the cowboy movies where they're spitting, or uh, Cormac McCarthy novels where there's a lot of spitting. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
So what Stekelenberg is saying is that even though we have Roman literature that has uh, lower class characters and characters who are understood as doing bawdy and vulgar things, we never in the existing corpus see them whistling or almost never. It seems to be the case, though Stekelenberg does point out a few areas where we're not entirely sure. And this is where we get into uh, the uh, the imprecise nature of language and in translations. Um, they point to a part in Petronius's Satyricon from the first century CE that describes a person who, quote, put his hand to his mouth and whistled out some terrible stuff I couldn't identify. Afterwards, he told us it was Greek air. Now, it's apparently an open question if the if the proper translation is whistling, and if it is whistling, what are, what, what are we really talking about? Is it whistling like, or is it finger whistling where you create you know the loud sound by you know, blowing through your fingers, or is this just bad singing? The idea that uh, you know some sounds are coming out of this person's mouth. They call it Greek air. It's just bad singing. Oh, I see. So like, uh, in order to be insulting, you might describe someone singing as wheezing or something. Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, they point out that even today, a fictional character whistling often means that they're, they're what? Like, they think of a whistling character in a film you've seen. It often means they're carefree or they're mm. happy or they're perhaps a bit of a doofus. Uh, sometimes the whistling is like, what's going to happen to this poor dope that's just uh, uh, whistling and a little uh, um, uh, unprepared for the circumstances ahead of them? Does Buster Scruggs whistle? I, I feel like I think he does. He does. I think yeah. he does, uh, if memory serves. You know, in, in uh, the Coen Brothers, Buster Scruggs, the uh, the, the first uh, bit in that anthology film. Yeah, he's this uh, this white suited cowboy who, at first, we think, yeah, he's just too he's just too much of a goody two shoes. He's just going to be eat up by the world that he's riding into. And of course, we find out that he's more than a match uh, for the violence of the world. Yeah, I guess that is the joke, that he's like the yeah. whistling, singing cowboy, but he's also a cold-blooded killer. Yeah, that fabulous short. I love that. Um, but uh, at any rate, we, we do see some variations on this. Uh, for instance, uh, Stekelenberg points out that in Western literature, we see whistling associated with the squire in the Canterbury Tales in the 14th century. Hmm. Uh, and this is a quote here. Singing he was, or fluting all the day. Uh, this is from the prologue. And I guess the fluting here is what might be whistling. Fluting without a flute. That, that's what I've always yeah. called whistling. <laughs> Stegallenberg points out that, okay, this character, though, the squire, is also a lusty lout. And we don't really see a precursor to this character type in Roman and Greek writing. But, uh, but here we have an, an early example of the lusty lout who is also potentially whistling. Hmm. Stegellenberg also raises the question of uh, perhaps humming was more common than whistling, uh, but the, the problem there is we also don't know much about humming in antiquity either. They write, quote, whatever the case, whistling apparently formed no part of the paralinguistic stock used by Greek and Roman authors. This stock was considerable as recent studies show, and a few studies are cited from, uh, uh, from the 1990s, and include such emotional indicators as jumping for joy and nail-biting. So saying here that, okay, if you're going to have characters do things to indicate, um, you know, what's going on in their heads or what kind of emotions are supposed to be uh, emoting on the stage or in, on, the, on the page, whatever the case may be, uh, you're going to have things that are being used like jumping for joy, like nail biting, and mm -hmm. yet there's no whistling. Now, they also get into this concept of whistling in the dark a bit, which, of course, is a well-worn turn of phrase for us in which one 
whistles to stave off fear. One of my favorite examples of this, or at least one that I think I encountered the earliest and therefore always think about this, is the Ichabod Crane and Headless Horseman cartoon from Disney. This was in 1949's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Though mm. this would have been, this was also a segment that was often aired on Disney TV Halloween specials. Mm. So there's definitely some whistling in the dark in that one. And of course, it doesn't really work. Um, uh, ultimately, the things in the dark come out to chase uh, Ichabod Crane around. Now, Rob, maybe we will get more into this in a subsequent part uh, when we talk about some psychology. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but maybe. But anyway, I wonder what you think of the function of whistling in this type of scenario where you're afraid, maybe you're wandering by yourself past a graveyard or wandering by yourself in the dark and there's a breeze blowing through the trees and you're a little bit apprehensive. So you start to whistle. Now, I think the phrase like whistling past the graveyard or, or whistling in the dark is supposed to denote like somebody showing bravado. You know, they're saying mm -hmm. they're like trying to show off that they're not afraid when in fact they are. But what I notice, and that comes up in the example I just mentioned, is that people often do this when they're alone, when there's nobody there to see them, nobody to show off to. So if whistling is to show off that you're not afraid, it seems like the showing off must either be to yourself somehow or to like the scary creature that you imagine is watching you. Yeah, uh, it would have to be one or the other. But uh, I guess in some of these cases, and especially when you're thinking about graveyards, there's definitely an imagined other out there. And it might not be an imagined other that you give a lot of weight most of the time, but at least right now it's on your mind. So we, we're going to get into several different examples of, of whistling as a, a potential means of summoning or accidentally summoning or drawing the attention of things that that should not be drawn in uh, to your vicinity. So mm -hmm. on one level, yeah, it seems a bit a bit um, uh, dangerous if you're going to actually fall in line with some of these supernatural beliefs. Like, I don't want to to summon the devil if I'm afraid of the devil coming out of the graveyard at me. But maybe part of it is like proving like not only am I not afraid of the devil in the graveyard, I'll go ahead and summon him. If he's here, he can come on out and we'll go ahead and do this. But I'm done with just being afraid of the devil uh, somewhere hiding in the graveyard. Okay, but I guess the question is whether it's actually whistling or whether it's just singing or humming. Some version of this idea, singing when you are afraid or singing through the graveyard, does this come up in ancient history as well? Do we have any evidence of this from thousands of years ago? It seems like we might. Uh, Stekelenberg brings up another example again from Petronius, and this is again from the Satyricon, and it also concerns a werewolf. Did you know that there were ancient Roman stories about werewolves? There absolutely <laughs> are. Yeah, and it's a, this one's a pretty good one. Um, this is, I'm, I'm going to read part of it at least. Uh, this is from a 1918 um, uh, Heseltine translation. Quote, I seized my opportunity and persuaded a guest in our house to come with me as far as the fifth milestone. He was a soldier and as brave as hell, so we trotted off about cockrow. The moon shone like high noon. We got among the tombstones. My man went aside to look at the epitaphs. I sat down with my heart full of song and began to count the graves. Hmm... So Stekelenberg writes the following on this. How tempting to interpret this scene as a clever application of psychological paralanguage, uh, which has a superstitious and frightened slave indulge in an ancient equivalent of our whistling in the dark. 
Since the uh, kantar represents many forms of musical expressions, we would even be justified in translating it here with whistling. Unfortunately, there is no straightforward indication that Petronius had this in mind. Okay, so despite the fact that our expression is often like whistling past the graveyard or whistling in the graveyard, um, this is a word cantare, which in whatever its Latin form is, could have meant whistling, but could also just mean singing. Right. Yeah. So again, we get into the the imprecise nature of language, which continues to be a theme with trying to figure out whistling or not whistling or making other sounds in various old texts. You know, this is kind of a tangent, but I feel like since we're on the werewolf story, it would be kind of a shame not to tell the werewolf story. What, what happens in this, this story by Petronius here? Okay, I, I can read the, the next little bit, which I think brings it to a nice closure. Then when I looked round at my friend, he stripped himself and put all his clothes by the roadside. My heart was in my mouth, but I stood like a dead man. He made a ring of water around his clothes and suddenly turned into a wolf. Please <gasps> do not think I am joking. I would not lie about this for any fortune in the world. But as I was saying, after he had turned into a wolf, he began to howl and ran off into the woods. At first, I hardly knew where I was. Then I went up to take his clothes, and they had all turned to stone. No one could be nearer dead with terror than I was. But I drew my sword and went slaying shadows all the way till I came to my love's house. I went in like a corpse, nearly gave up the ghost. The sweat ran down my legs. My eyes were dull. I could hardly be revived. My dear Melissa was surprised at my state, at my being out so late, and said, If you had come earlier, you might at least have helped us. A wolf got into the house and worried all our sheep and let their blood like a butcher. But he did not make fools of us, even though he got off, for our slave made a hole in his neck with a spear. When I heard this, I could not keep my eyes shut any longer, but at break of day, I rushed back to my master Gaius's house like a defrauded publican, and when I came to the place where the clothes were turned into stone, I found nothing but a pool of blood. But when I reached home, my soldier was lying in bed like an ox with a doctor looking after his neck. I realized that he was a werewolf, and I never could sit down to a meal with him afterwards, not if you had killed me first. Other people may think what they like about this. But may all your guardian angels punish me if I am lying. Wow. That's pretty fun. Pretty staple werewolf sort of story there. It's a great werewolf story. But uh, my biggest question is, do oxes normally lie in human beds? What does he mean? I was lying in my bed like an ox. (laughs) Oh, no, no, not him. My soldier was lying in bed like an ox. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I feel like we're, we're missing some kind of historical context there. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's like he's light. His body is like that of an ox. Uh, I don't know. Mm. I don't. I, I, nothing comes to mind when I try and picture an, an ox laying down. But yeah, it's really funny how. Okay, so this is the, the Satyricon by Petronius. This is first century uh, CE. So it's like two thousand years later, and werewolf movies are still using the exact same trope, where somebody figures out it's a werewolf because they see the monster get wounded on a certain part of the body, and then later they see a human wounded on the same part of the body. That's in like half the werewolf movies they make. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And I think yeah. I've I've seen this in in other animal transformation myths and stories before, like perhaps some were tiger stories from China and so forth. I, I agree. It, it, it still works. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. All right. So for the next bit that Stekelenberg gets into is, is that they break down a couple of things we've kind of we've at least touched on, if not already discussed. And we may break these out further later on. But we have uh, semaphoric whistling or whistling as a form of signaling. And this has been around for a very long time. This is something that goes back to archaic humans. Citing Peter F. Otswald, uh, they share, quote, whistles are easier to hear than words because they concentrate sound energy into a narrow segment of the frequency spectrum instead of spreading it. Generally, they occur in the frequency range of 1,000 to 4,000 cycles per second to which the human ear is most sensitive. Oh, yeah. So this is the same fact that was cited uh, in slightly different terms in that linguistics paper that we looked at in the previous section by uh, Meyer that was about how whistling tends to be a good medium for transmitting information because it's in that frequency range of one to four kilohertz, which is a good place to concentrate energy if you want it to travel the forest and be audible uh, and, and carry distinct information the longest distance, because that's like that's that's sort of the bullseye for what our ears can detect and separate out from ambient noise. 
Now, the next part here is where things get very biblical. Uh, because uh, Stekelenberg points out that the oldest reference to semaphoric use of whistling uh, can be found in the book of Isaiah 526, where the Lord whistles to summon people. He, uh, the, uh, quote, he will raise a signal for a nation afar off and whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and lo, swiftly, speedily it comes. So I started off looking into this just by checking it in my uh, Oxford NRSV to see if the translation was different in any significant way. And it's not. The translation's almost exactly the same as what Stekelenberg has here. But in reading it, this passage, I thought I should explain more about the context because it makes that quote especially interesting and even scary. This is one mm-hmm. of the most, I think, one of the most powerful and chilling passages in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, this is actually a prophecy of doom. In this part of the book of Isaiah, the author is pronouncing a verdict of divine judgment and punishment against the people of Israel and Judah because, he says, they have ignored God's instructions and chosen to live in wickedness. And so there's a section before this where he's just talking about the evil they do, and uh, you might recognize some lines from this because they're pretty famous. The, the, the prophet says, Ah, you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, you who are wise in your own eyes and shrewd in your own sight, ah, you who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant at mixing drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their rights. Oh man, God coming out strong against mixed drinks here. Yeah, against mixed drinks and against bribing so that the guilty win in court. <laughs> but then it starts getting with the really like scary expressive metaphors. It, from here it goes into, therefore as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will become rotten and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the instruction of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked, and their corpses were like refuse in the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Then comes the line about God whistling. From that it goes straight into, He will raise a signal for a nation far away, and whistle for a people at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly, speedily. And in this line, the people being referenced there, who are they? These are the armies of the Assyrian Empire, described in the following passages in terrifying detail. Uh, The prophet says they march without rest. Their arrows are sharp. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their wheels like a whirlwind. They roar like lions. They roar like the sea. And it ends saying the light grows dark with clouds. And so the prophet is saying here that the Lord will whistle to summon an invading army to slaughter his people because they have done evil and turned away from him. Wow. So first he just wrecks and destabilizes everything uh, uh, in this uh, sinful nation. And then he calls to an, an, uh, an invading army to come on over and finish him off. Yes. And so the the whistle here, I think that takes on a totally different context. That makes it a, a whistle of absolute terror from on high. It is something that should chill you to the bone. But then it gets even stranger because Stekelenberg points out that the Hebrew word for whistle 
here leaves some room for interpretation. And apparently there's still some uh, discussion about this, with some arguing that what we're talking about here is indeed a whistle, but others say that it is a hiss, the hiss of God. Wow. So you shared that fact with me earlier, and I don't know what to do. That is one of the scariest images I have ever heard of, the hiss of God. I mean, the whistle is already scarier with the additional context that you provided here. But yeah. but the idea of, of God God hissing, uh, and, and especially in, in such a wrathful mode of behavior, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of chilling. Okay, but so if there's some ambiguity in the translation here, I guess that would mean that whatever word is used has something to do clearly with like a, a an expressive expelling of breath. Yeah, and that's the thing. We're getting into breath language here uh, and, and breath-related sounds. And apparently in, a, in various ancient texts, there's a fair amount of leeway in how we might think of a hiss or a whistle as it relates to not only human uh, sounds, but also non-human sounds like leaves, arrows, and the wind. Uh, quote, hissing and whistling when produced by humans results the same interaction between respiratory and oral agents. The only difference is that in hissing, the oral obstruction placed in the way of the airstream is the teeth, while in the case of whistling, it is the lips. In antiquity, this difference was apparently felt as too slight for differentiation between the two sounds and for the establishment of separate terminology. The lack of differentiation continues in some of the daughter languages. Wow, that's interesting because so... We're, we're trying to understand the cultural significance of whistling, which in our context very often means something like, you know, it's just kind of like innocent, carefree sound making. Whereas a hiss, I think, is almost universally acknowledged to be one of the most hostile sounds a person could make. Yes. Um, uh, my, my son would, would hiss for a while. I forget where he picked this up. Like this is something animal uh, world, you know, kids have this mm -hmm. natural affinity with animals. But I always, I always approved of it because I'm like, yes, if, if, if threatened, like hissing sends a certain signal. Like that we're, we're past language now. Now we're in the hissing, hissing zone. I, um, have, I am so mad at you. I've become an animal. I am a snake. I am a cat. It was probably a cat connection for sure. Um, now, Stekelenburg points to various examples in Greek writings, including Homer, in which we also encounter this hiss-whisper confusion. Uh, both are nonverbal language substitutes, they point out, but there is still a distinct difference, uh, you know, at least you know, to our, our modern understanding of all this. But yeah, it, it, it just becomes difficult to try and sort all of this out, especially in these ancient texts. Was this a whistle? Was this a hiss? Is this other thing? Are we describing the wind as hissing or is the wind whistling? How do we mm -hmm. think of these? And that connection between whistling and the wind uh, is, is important in, in other regards as well when we get into superstition and magic. But Stekelenburg also gets into some other areas that I hadn't even really thought about uh, in connection to whistling. Uh, for instance, the subject of cat calls, uh, not to be confused with the wolf whistle. So th this is interesting because I think I would tend to think when I hear cat calls, I tend to think of, of what Stekelenburg is actually describing as the wolf whistle. Um, hmm. So Stekelenburg points out that we do have clear Roman references to, to the cat call, to some kind of whistling used offensively against actors, speakers, or performers in order to drive them off the stage. You don't like the performers on the stage. You don't like the speaker. Well, you, everybody just... just uh, sort of whistles at them. They just kind of use a bunch of these these cat calls in order to drive them away. So whistling as just straightforward harassment or abuse. Yes. 
Uh, Cicero even makes reference to these. Cicero, uh, of course, the, the famous orator who lived uh, 106 through 43 BCE. Basically, it's a, it's a letter from uh, Cicero to Atticus, and he's boasting about how popular he is and how the last time he gave a particular uh, speech, uh, he did not hear a single shepherd's whistle. Uh, so the idea is that he's referring to a complete absence of catcalls during his appearance because he was just so captivating. And uh, apparently the language is key here because if Cicero had been referring to hissing instead of whistling, he would have used... Uh, a different uh, particular bit of terminology. Okay, so while earlier Stekelenburg was arguing that we don't have references to fictional characters in Roman literature whistling, there are some references to whistling in the in the broader sort of descriptive literature about society. Yeah, and so first of all, this catcall area, which um, you know, I, I, my mind didn't go to here immediately, and also I don't know that I've encountered this much. Maybe I just haven't been to performances. Uh, in a while where uh, that, that were that were um, where there was like a negative audience experience that is <laughs> you know, I don't think that's maybe where at least like modern Western audiences are going to go immediately if they want to express their negative feelings like they're good, probably going to boo or something right uh yeah I'd say booing is is more common in in American culture yeah hmm. I've never heard an audience whistle uh, as a form of, of disapproval. <laughs> well, apparently it was such a thing that uh, it was and still is, at least at, at the writing, uh, the, this was again written in 2000, in the British theater, the whistling was just such a fear, like this would be the force trying to drive you off the stage, that uh, whistling was, was just not done in a British theater dressing room. Um, and it's possibly linked to this. Now, Stekelenburg stresses that there seems to be a divide between whistling uh, on, with the British stage and the American stage, uh, again, as of 2000 anyway, when this was written, pointing out that, okay, sometimes it seems okay and positive for American audiences to whistle at the performers on stage. And mm -hmm. this, this does click for me. I know I've been to performances where there's a certain amount of whistling, clapping, wooing, you know, all sorts of different sounds that are made as a positive uh, sound at the end of a performance. Uh, ululations as well, um, you know, various different um, uh, nonverbal sounds. Uh, but, uh, but this could include whistling, whereas in the British context, you still wouldn't whistle uh, you might have, you know, gotten a dirty look from uh, from from English theater goers if you were there whistling at the end of uh, a performance of Shakespeare, and you were trying to say, "Oh, this is great! I'm going to whistle." So you're saying that might have been interpreted by some as like praising a performance by yelling, "Get off the stage!" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, finally, Stekelenberg gets to this this topic of wolf whistling, which again is what I thought. What a cat call was, uh, but I, I guess I, I had my terminology uh, mixed up on that. Uh, the wolf whistle is a whistle to indicate sexual interest, uh, not unlike a cartoon wolf in an old animated short. Now, I was reading a little bit about people trying to locate the origin of the wolf whistle, which is a specific intonation. It's like a, uh, a rising whistle followed by a falling whistle. Uh, you mm -hmm. can probably hear it in your head right now. Woo, woo. And for a while, there was an explanation going around that this was traceable back to 
uh, specific whistles used in, on, on naval ships that there were like a, a whistle with that intonation would be used to get sailors attention. But I've also seen some undermining of that explanation. So I'm not sure if it's exactly known where the, uh, the, the sexual harassment form of the whistle comes from. Yeah, and when we go to look for evidence in antiquity, this is another case where Stekelenburg says there's just we just don't know. There's like one account of possible wolf whistling in Platius's Mercator. This would have been from the uh, the very uh, early fifth century, and it's unclear if it's a hiss or a whistle. Once again, it might have been a so it might have been a hiss, could have been a whistle, some other sound of the mouth even. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, but Rob, I think we should switch over to talking about some of the superstitions about whistling because whistling apparently is widely believed in many cultures to have some kind of power, often negative power, beyond just being perceived as rude or or a form of harassment or something like that, that it actually could have dangerous magical power. That's right. Yeah, there there are numerous examples of this to discuss, and they they have some similar trends. There's sort of the idea of of whistling as wind magic, and therefore there are potential elemental uh, uh, ramifications for whistling, especially kind of reckless whistling. I guess that's Mm -hmm. what a lot of these seem to get to the idea that when we whistle, we are engaging in some sort of wind magic and we probably don't know what we're doing and the effects could just be completely out of control. Uh, other ideas are that whistling is some sort of connection to the spirit world and whistling can summon or attract the attention of things, uh, that we don't want the attention of. 
and, uh, and so forth. Uh, then there are also some other sort of environmental specific examples that get into the dangers of whistling. You know, I don't have um, proof that this is the, the, the causal connection here, but I wonder if a lot of these beliefs about the supernatural power of whistling comes from the linguistic tradition of associating spirits with breath. Uh, you know, like mm. in Greek, you would often use the same word to indicate both that like a person's breath leaving their body would be the pneuma, which is the same word you use to indicate a certain kind of uh, animating divine spirit or like the, the Holy Ghost, the pneuma. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I imagine there might be something to that. Now, first idea I want to touch on, though, is just the idea of and this is a pretty big one, whistling at sea. Uh, and, and this is discussed in a paper by Christina Hole that uh, is titled Superstitions and Belief of the Sea. This came out in a 1967 edition of the journal Folklore. And in it, she writes that at least in Western traditions, the whistle was just a bad omen as it created a little wind, quote, and by imitative magic may produce a greater one. So you got to be careful whistling because that whistle could turn into a fearsome gale uh, that could uh, blow the ship over, etc. And that's if men did it. And if women mm. did it, it could be even worse. Because it's kind of like the idea is, it seems very sexist here. It's kind of like, well, if, if men are at sea and they are near a boat and they're whistling, they might accidentally bring about a catastrophic wind that destroys everything. But if a woman's doing well, she might be a wind summoning witch. She might actually know what she's doing. And that's even more dangerous. Yes. <laughs> so either way, though, whistling at sea was bad luck for anybody. The rare exception, Hole writes, is that you did have cases where you'd have sailors stuck at sea in a dead calm. So they're out there on the ship and there's no wind. The ship is not moving. It's the, it's the opposite of the threat of the catastrophic wind. It's the threat of no wind and mm -hmm. a slow death out on the waters. So in some of these cases, there are accounts of, 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 the, of sailors daring to make like small whistles, slight whistles, in the hopes that they'll stir up just enough wind to get them out of this predicament. Oh, this is this is the scene from the horror movie where a character is in such a jam that they have no choice but to do do the dangerous ritual that they have been mm -hmm. warned against by a wise old person. Yeah. Uh, so I thought this was an interesting paper in general, this one uh, by Christina Hull. Uh, and she argues that the sea is a place where old, uh, otherwise long vanished tensions between gods and religions tend to rise up again. And part of the explanation here is that for many pagans, the sea it not only had a god, but in a, in a sense kind of was a god. It was like a living entity with thoughts and desires and whims, and the sea brought both blessings and curses. It's, you know, it's the bringer of riches, but it can also destroy. And for this reason, probably gods embodying the sea are often depicted as temperamental, unpredictable, alternately generous and murderous. And uh, w one interesting fact I'd never heard before, but uh, Hull talks about how in uh, in European seafaring traditions for hundreds of years, priests, nuns, and clergy have been considered bad luck on the sea. Like you don't want to carry monks or nuns on board. And she even tells a story of a sea voyage taken by a friend of hers, who, uh, which when I think it was crossing the Atlantic had some Trappist monks on board and the sailors were blaming the monks for the fact that there was bad weather and the boat kept rolling and everybody was nauseated and throwing up. <laughs> 
So in many cases, you're on a boat and you not only do you not want to be carrying monks or nuns or whatever, you don't even want to say a word like priest. So why would that be? You would think, okay, these are these are Christian sailors, so they would at least probably think that the clergy would be a good omen, not a bad. But uh, the author here speculates as follows, quote, These beliefs have nothing to do with anti-clerical feeling, and many who hold them are devout Christians when on land. They probably run back to that transition period when paganism was slowly giving way to Christianity, and many people, especially those who, like sailors, led a dangerous life, had a foot in both camps, acknowledging Christ on shore, but taking care not to offend the old gods when at sea. Moreover, whatever was holy and consecrated was once regarded as a center of mystical power, which was as likely to be dangerous as to be beneficent, and was therefore to be guarded against. And so, of course, that's just an interpretation. We don't know that's the reasoning mm-hmm. here. It's always hard to get at the ultimate reasoning for folk beliefs. But that seems plausible to me, and I, I really like that. It's the idea that there's a power in it, and just the fact that there's a power in it is dangerous, even if the priest is supposedly the good guy based on your current religious beliefs. Just the fact that it the priesthood is a center of power makes it potentially dangerous when you're in a dangerous situation like the sea. And I think you could maybe say the same thing of whistling itself, that whistling is perceived as having a power, and therefore, even if the power isn't always evil, it's just the fact that there is the power in it that makes it scary. Yeah, yeah, all this on top of just sort of the the other idea of of falling back into older beliefs when things heat up, uh, when you're in a dangerous place. And of course, again, this is the ocean, it is inherently dangerous. And therefore, yeah, you could imagine this, this, not only this idea of like, I'm going to slide back into older belief systems because I feel like there's heightened danger, but I wonder too, if, if you have more specific gods and traditions that you can fall back on. Uh, whereas, you know, the new Christianity, it might not, it might not have any like specific things you can do to avoid uh, a watery death. Uh, but the old ways, they might have had particular rights, particular things you could do, things you were not supposed to do, uh, a, a path you might follow through the uncertain. Yeah. Which I think, you know, it, it, I think some of us might be able to relate to that in a modern sense, too. Like, it's you can have more of a, an atheistic mindset uh, when you're on the airplane and there's no turbulence. But when the turbulence kicks in, well, you know, what can you do? You might you might let a prayer slip out here or there, <laughs> uh, just because uh, you know if if there is nothing practically you can do in that scenario mm-hmm. beyond you know the you know, obvious safety uh, parameters, uh, then then there are these other scripts you can turn to, these other uh, models of of reality that at least give you like somewhere to devote your attention. And and just from the uh, the standpoint of the ocean, I mean, we could easily come back and discuss these at greater length. You get there are whole lists of various bad luck omens that include things like, of course, the albatross is tied up in some of these, but also things like bananas, and then uh, various interesting um, like touch based uh, uh, positive good luck, like everyone has to touch the same part of the ship. Um, mm-hmm. That sort of thing, uh, collar touching. Uh, I think cats end up playing a role in some of these. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's a whole interesting world of like the heightened danger of the sea and some of the the superstitious approaches to survival on the sea. Apparently, seeing a drowned cat was one of the worst omens. She says that Ooh. would sometimes make people just turn around and go back. Oh wow! 
Oh, but to, to come back to whistling, uh, another thing that uh, Christina Hull says here is that it, whistling is not just uh, a, a locus of superstition on the sea. There seem to be all kinds of uh, fears about the power of whistling even on land. Right. And that we, she gets into this idea again that whistling may attract the attention of things that you don't want to attract. Uh, and, and some of these relate to the sea, some are more related to the land. She points that uh, in the East uh, Anglian Finns, uh, sportsmen out at night never whistle to their dog because they might call up the lantern man, which would have been a type of uh, will-o'-the-wisp creature that you did not want attracted to your whereabouts. Yeah, fire fiend. And you know what? I, I wonder if there is just a, a general similar line of thinking or if it could actually be based in that biblical passage about, you know, again, one of the oldest references to whistling as a signal to like attract attention is God whistling to attract the attention of a ravaging army that will come and destroy you. Yeah. Uh, now, in terms of uh, this is an interesting one. This one is one I read in Carol Rose in her, her uh, compendium of monsters. She points to the the merman known as the Dinimara, uh, that was considered a, th- a, a threat in some cases uh, by uh, by the, the people of the Isle of Man, the, the Manx uh, people. Uh, generally, the man of the sea, the Dinimara, was generally more benevolent than other forms of the myth because you have some um, you have some truly awful mer creatures out there in the world of folklore. But this one in particular, though, if you were to whistle, you could stir uh, stir him up and cause excess wind. So uh, on one hand, it's kind of a supernatural creature whose attention you might get through whistling, but also we get back into the basic wind magic of the thing. Like, be careful whistling, you're toying with the wind magic, and you're at sea, and that's where the wind is particularly dangerous, and the least little thing can stir it up. Hole mentions uh, another omen related to whistling, and that is the omen of the seven whistlers. And this, from from her description, it sounds basically like a particular chorus of bird song that would spell disaster for those who heard it, particularly, say, before a battle. Hmm. Now, coming back at least uh, briefly to uh, Stekelenburg, Stekelenburg points to Roman writer uh, Columella, who shares that whistling could be used to encourage oxen to drink. Which, uh, which Stekelenburg links to the possible sound similarities between whistling and flowing water. So again, instead of the wind, this time we're talking about water and we're talking about the similarities of the sound here. Um, this idea seems to have survived into English traditions concerning horses, uh, at least into the 16th century. But wait, so if you're an ancient Roman, you can whistle to make oxen drink, but will that make oxen lie in your bed? <laughs> I am not, I'm not certain about that, no. <laughs> Uh, somebody who has Roman history knowledge, can you explain the ox in the bed metaphor to us? I want to know what that means. <laughs> it is interesting, though, to think about this idea of like the whistle as a, a sound that is imitating not birds or, or other organisms, but but imitating elemental forces, the wind, mm-hmm. or in this case, the water, and therefore allowing just the average person to tap in to those the streams of, of terrific and at times you know catastrophic uh, energies. Well, I would also say the same thing for hissing. Hissing kind of takes away your humanity. You 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 don't sound like a person speaking or expressing an opinion. You sound like a hostile animal or even a hostile landscape. Hmm. I guess sometimes there is hissing in theater, right? Like a negative. Yeah, yeah. That, that's you a, hiss at the villain. Story. Yeah. Yeah, you you know, you boo hiss when Iago comes on stage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, we're, we're, we're looking at the clock now and realize that we're out of time for this episode, but oh, we, we, have, we still have a lot more. So we're going to go to a, a four-parter on whistling, but we got some great stuff to come back to. We're going to dive back in a bit to some uh, Eastern traditions of, of magic and whistling. We're going to discuss some more examples of whistling superstition and folklore. Um, and then, oh, we're going to get into the psychology of whistling a bit as well. Does the spirit dwell within you? If it does, come back and and, uh, expel that breath one more time. Yeah. Is it okay to whistle while you work? Should we be listening to dwarves on this matter uh, to begin with? Uh, It'll all be discussed in the next episode. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, our core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. On Mondays, we do listener mail. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just focus on a weird film in Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.